Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Weird Comics History. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And we like to bring you some weird comics history every week on WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast. This week we have a, I think this is going to be our first multi-parter, isn't it, Chris? I think so, yeah. I just don't know how many parts it's going to go. Yeah, we can't guarantee, you know, <laughs> I'm hoping it's two, but, you know, the way we, we tend to carry on, this could end up being weeks and weeks of learning about the same thing. But it's, it's, no very, promises. <laughs> it's an interesting topic, and it is very DC-centric because it's something uh, not a lot of people are aware of, and that is how the Silver Age began. It was actually a DC comic that kicked it off. That comic was... Showcase number four, cover dated October 1956, uh, written by Robert Kaniger and John Broom, and drawn by Carmen Infantino, edited by Julia Schwartz. And uh, this introduced the new Barry Allen Flash of the World, that's the red-suited one with the suit that collapses into a ring and uh, pops out. That was what really kicked it off years before uh, Fantastic Four ever hit the scene was this little tiny comic, uh, an anthology comic called Showcase. But then my question to you, Chris, is who is The Flash? Well, it depends on who we're talking about. uh, Because, as you mentioned, this is the Barry Allen Flash, where uh, about uh, 15, 16 years earlier, uh, there was a different Flash. And that was uh, Jay Garrick, who first appeared in Flash Comics number 1 in uh, January 1940. Uh, he was created by Gardner Fox and Harry Lampert. And uh, Fox, uh, he also created uh, Hawkman, who we all know. That's right. And, and we don't know if that's the same Hawkman or not, do we? <laughs> There's really no way to know, you know. <laughs> I, I believe that th- that Hawkman was the... Uh, I don't know, actually. I, gotta, I, gotta yeah, admit, we, we I gotta, started thinking about it. I just remember the wings looked like shit. Yeah, we've got to cut him in half and count the rings because I, I don't know which one he is. Um, then uh, Gardner Fox, he also created the JSA uh, in the Golden Age, the JLA uh, yep. years later, and uh, also the concept of the multiverse, which is, I'm sure will be a uh, piece all in uh, all in of itself. There. For sure, that's right. The Flash of Two Worlds. That's uh, that's yes. kicked it all off. But that, that's for another day, everybody. <laughs> Almost, uh, almost definitely. Yeah. Um, now, uh, most people are used to the red costume, you know, the Barry Allen one you just said shrinks into the ring. Sure. Uh, this one is a little different. Mm. Uh, it kind of, it kind of looks like a like a sweatsuit with a lightning bolt on it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have a college student, Jay Garrick. He uh, he bumps into some beakers and test tubes, and uh, these beakers and test tubes happen to be filled with uh, Arizona water or, or hard water. Oh, I see. <laughs> yes. That's he you, passes out. Over there, you just call it water. Yeah, we, uh, we we just don't call it too loud. We don't want it to notice us. Um, he passes out and inhales these the fumes, which I'm unfamiliar with, and uh, finds that he has super speed when he wakes up. Um, oh, being God. the humble fellow that he is, he immediately shows off to everybody and uh, uses his super speed to win a uh, college football game. Right, right in full view of a whole crowd. Yes, you know, nothing, <laughs> nothing obscuring his. Everyone knows it's Jay Garrick. They're like, how? This is this is this is normal stuff, though. Apparently, in uh, the world of the golden age. Yeah, lucky for him though. They all have very short memories, and uh, they they don't know how to draw correlations oh, between him and the uh, new superhero on the block. Two super speeders. What the you know? <laughs> yeah, one in a costume, one without, and neither of them wore a mask. So. Uh, he uh, did wear a helmet, though, uh, which was a, a goofy-looking helmet that was a riff on uh, Mercury. Yeah. And uh, 
the Flash, you know, the the Barry Allen one, he has a little lightning bolt in a circle on his chest. Uh, this guy has a lightning bolt going up from the crotch of his costume. Well, you know, <laughs> and that's every the time, ladies. I think maybe. And, uh, you know, I, I first was introduced to him, uh, you know, as part of the Justice Society during their reintroduction in the early 90s. And it always just looked like his pants were up around his nipples. Yeah. Because of that lightning bolt, it just skewed the perspective of it and made it look like he was riding real high. That's how they wore him in those days. Pull your pants up, son. You know, you got to have some pride. Put your chest you out. You know, pick your pants up over here. You know, just just a word about the hard water. The reason I think the hard water gave him super... Because you haven't experienced any super speed out in Arizona, have you? No, I think I've gotten slower. Not that you're aware of. Uh... Is that there was an article in Scientific American right around that time, maybe 36, 37, about how some runners and athletes were injecting themselves with mineral water in, no in order to get a boost of vitamins, you know, or something, or get a boost of zinc. And uh, my, my, I'm betting Gardner Fox read that and not really understanding the science behind it, extrapolated <laughs> that. Well, if you, if you, you know, huffed mineral water all night, then you'd be super speed, so. It stands to reason. That's my guess. Uh, there, you know, there was another character around the same time. That I, I kind of paired. We're going to pair these guys up later on for obvious reasons, but they still kind of stay paired up in my mind because they look very similar and uh, they debuted almost exactly the same time. That was Green Lantern. He uh, debuted in All American Comics number sixteen, cover dated July nineteen forty. Created Hal by Jordan is from nineteen forty. Oh no, I'm sorry. That was that would be Alan <laughs> Alan Scott. Oh, yes, him. Uh, a totally different fella who was just riding a train one day. I can't remember what, what his occupation was offhand. I think he was a construction worker. Was he just a construction worker or maybe an engineer? That's what he was. Maybe, yeah. He was, uh, yeah, that's right. He was an engineer. He was created by Bill Finger and Martin Nodell. Bill Finger, of course, is currently and finally getting co-creator credit on Batman. Uh, yes. Pretty well-respected character. There is also the Bill Finger Award given to comic creators posthumously for... You know, if you forgot to give them props in life, they can get an award in death, and that's great for them. Absolutely. Another stupid origin and even stupider costume. <laughs> Not even green, but it's one of my favorites. So he, he was rescued from a train explosion by a magic green lantern who announced to him, Three times shall I flame green. First to bring death, second to bring life, and third to bring power. And the, the lantern goes on to tell this uh, mildly racist story. Uh, about being part of some Chinese, um, a Chinese wizard had it. It was some yeah. metal that was fashioned to a Chinese lantern, and uh, the first time I can't remember how it brought life. Maybe it healed somebody. The second time, a villainous guy used it to, or he killed the wizard, and then the, the lantern killed him. And then over the years, it got fashioned into a railroad lantern and wound up saving uh, Alan Scott's life. So in a sense, it brought life again. Mm-hmm. But it also bestowed power. Why not? It's sort of magic. This is, you know, my, the point. My the point I'm trying to make here is that uh, the origin is essentially magic happened. There's no, you know, there's no alien came no, down from yeah, here. no deep thinking. Yeah, yeah it wasn't uh, a, a mathematical equation or any kind of uh, serum that he took. Magic occurred. Suddenly, now he's got the Green Lantern. And uh, back then, the ring's weakness was wood rather than the color yellow, which made the Sportsmaster actually a very difficult villain. Yes, he, he, he was able to bring it. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned uh, bringing death um, in the speech there. They uh, in a 1990s issue of Green Lantern, they went deeper into that, and they that's when the wood impurity was was put on, into the ring. When when he brought death, 
when, yeah, when when the when like the interloper came in, killed the wizard or whoever, and uh, took the ring himself. That's when they put the impure, the wood impurity into it. I see. I seem to recall that they did fold uh, Alan Scott more into the Green Lantern mythos. I guess in the nineties, but yeah, into the core. Yeah, I'm not totally. Like, he's. It's still. It's still an offshoot. He's not. You know. He doesn't answer to the Guardians, but obviously, it's of the same bent or something. I don't really. I don't really recall the details, and uh, hmm. I'm not going to uh, try to. So. <laughs> Uh, he also had an incredible costume that uh, it really has to be seen to be believed. This high collar, r- ridiculous cape over a really blousy pirate shirt. He kind of has a part pirate, part Dracula look that always spoke to me. Also, very blousy pants, tucked yeah. into some boots. You know, definitely if he had a, if he had a cutlass, it would look right on. And uh, this story was actually co- connected with the Aladdin legend. You know, the genie that gives out three wishes. It was sort of a, a riff on that, and in fact, Alan Scott's name was supposed to be Alan Ladd uh, to sound like Aladdin, but at that same time, there was a movie, and I was stupid not to look up what the name of the movie was, but one of the main characters was Alan Ladd. Was it Arabian Nights? There it was. Now you got it. Arabian. There it is. Uh, <laughs> so uh, they decided not to go that way, which I guess is neither here nor there, since I think most people wouldn't even catch the... Uh, the illusion, yeah. The illusion, but this is this is what Bill Finger apparently had in mind. So uh, both these characters were published by All American Comics. This was a comics company owned by Max Gaines, who actually is really the father of the comic book. So he owned both of them, uh, and he actually teamed up with National Periodicals, which was DC Comics in the in the uh, late '30s and uh, into the '40s. And later on, he got rid of his company, decided he didn't want to do superheroes. He wanted to do Bible stories and classic illustrated type comics. I'm not sure if they were the actual classics illustrated, uh, but he changed the name of his company to Educational Comics. Educational, yeah. EC Comics. EC Comics, which sounds familiar to you. That's because Max Gaines was the father of Bill Gaines, who would run EC Comics later, which became Entertaining Comics, and that led to... The Haunt of Fear and, you know, all these other comics and eventually onto Mad. But that's a story for a whole other podcast. Yes. <laughs> As usual. <laughs> well, uh, what happened to these heroes? Why did they go away? And how how is it how is it they were off the scene to be replaced in the first place by uh, Barry and Hal? Um, the, the popularity of superheroes was waning after World War II. Um, and, uh, th- you know, there's a, a lot of reasons for that. Uh, maybe, you know, the real, not, the real life urgency of war might have, uh, you know, bred the same as in the, into the comics. Yeah. And uh, the superheroes, you know, they were bright and colorful. And they, back in the day, it always seemed like they were very generational. Like they, they only counted on, on their, their following for like, what, what was it, three to five years? And then you were out of comics? I think it was three years. It was, it was something it, like the that, ages right? Yeah. Eight to 11, they thought they'd get yeah. you. So it's like I think they thought that maybe this would be like a single generation thing because, you know, as as the kids were growing a little bit older, they'd be going, you know, they'd be going into war. Sure. They'd be joining the military, going into war, um, and as such, uh, DC uh, they they shifted to uh, cater more to the war western sci-fi romance crime and horror crowds rather than superheroes. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a funny story. And, that, uh, and cheesecake. Let's not forget about the uh, sexy lady drawings. Oh, this is also true. <laughs> that was all within within the genres you're talking about. Were sexy lady drawings? Those are the ones you need to you need to ask the store owner to see. <laughs> Those are behind the counter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you just don't want to buy them secondhand. And. Uh, 
All American Comics was a, was a title that uh, DC had, and they changed that to All American Western. And uh, Roy Thomas, uh, the comic creator, you know, big big guy in Marvel sure. and DC, he uh, told an anecdote that his first subscription was the last issue of All American Comics. <laughs> so the next month he got All American Western and didn't know what to make of it. Wow. Um, we also had uh, Star Spangled Comics became Star Spangled War Stories, and uh, more fun comics. Uh, they kept the name, but they dropped heroes. They just they focused on uh, on humor from yeah, that point on. Funny animals, stuff like that. And, yeah. and gags and jokes, which which actually were always a staple of Golden Age comics. Uh, would often have these little gag inserts, and this was like a comic just full of them. Just that, um, yeah. So yeah, it, it was a real big transition at the time. The country was changing, the morals were mores were changing. I think that uh, things were getting a lot less loose, you know, and, and wild. But also another huge thing happened. Yeah, the uh, Kef Kef Fauver if I'm I've, saying that right, I'm sure I'm not. I've always I've always said Kefauver, but that might be my Kefauver. my New York uh, Kefauver. Kefauver, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're all verklempt with the Kefauver. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, that was a Senate Senate subcommittee hearing uh, into juvenile delinquency. These uh, were televised over three days in 1954, uh, two days in April and one day in June. Mm-hmm. And one of the fellows who was put on uh, the stand was uh, the boogeyman of, right. of, of comic books, uh, Frederick Wortham, who uh, we will be, I'm sure we'll be talking about him in a much deeper detail uh, in, in later on. Absolutely. Um, but his book, uh, as, as folks know, is Seduction of the Innocent, that uh, goes for quite a, quite a clip of money online if you, if you can find a copy. Yeah, uh, but it, you know, it basically goes into blasting comics for uh, corrupting the morals of today's youth. The broader investigation of juvenile delinquency that that the whole kafaver was about, uh, they 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 brought comics into that. Yeah, uh, I I, but, I wanted to make that clear that this wasn't it wasn't a, a comics witch hunt. Yeah, it wasn't just comics. It, it but comics just, were part of it. Definitely, and they, and they were a big part of it. But it was also about gangs and uh, home lives, you know, and 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 how the dynamic of American home life was changing. But that's. A story for someone else's podcast entirely because that's not even about <laughs> yes. comics. No, if they, if they want to talk about the, the moral values of the 50s, that's, that's, right. that's a different show. <laughs> um, this uh, ultimately uh, results in the, the Comics Code Authority, that little stamp that's, uh, mm-hmm. that comes and goes and, and comes again on the uh, covers of books. And uh, also the uh, Comics Magazines Association of America Incorporated, uh, they it more or less neutered comics. It uh, it. It put a, it really reined in what they could do. Big uh, time, yeah. It made it so everything had to everything had to pass muster with the with the authority before uh, before going out. Especially that first incarnation of the code. If you ever if you ever get into reading how it changed over the years, the first one was obviously the most strict, and it was very very strict. It was yeah, it I, was I, ludicrous. I mean, it was like you know no werewolves. You couldn't have the word weird in the title of your comic. It was just like arbitrary rules that. Really seemed to aim towards getting one certain publisher pushed out of the industry, but that again is for another time. Well, for another time. Yeah, they, I, I, something that was interesting that I read uh, just a couple of days ago was that if it was a good character, they couldn't speak with any sort of accent. <laughs> yeah. So, so like you couldn't have a police officer, like even even you know the old Irish stereotype, they couldn't have a police officer with an accent because it would make someone in, in authority look weak. That, well, yeah, they'd be un-American and therefore. <laughs> 
therefore bad. Bad. During this, DC claimed that they had their own internal code. Uh, This was 1954. They said that they implemented one in 1948, which may have made things worse because if they still weren't happy with it, then that would uh, really say how much the government thought of that code. Yeah. And, and, you know, Disney had its own code also. There were, you know, there were children's comics at the time. Hmm. Uh, so, So there were codes. I think Harvey had its own code for its kids comics but they also put out so. they also put out some of the biggest horror comics of the day uh mm-hmm. so they couldn't be they couldn't keep their hands totally clean so so the idea of imposing a uh morality code on comics was not brand new but this was going to be industry wide yeah this was the whole all the way across this is it, it kind of makes you think of the uh was it the ESRB ratings that were put on video games in yeah. the uh, mid nineties? It's just a way of a way of governing themselves so it they don't they don't lose complete yeah. control. Or even movie or even movie ratings are the exact Absolutely. same thing. I mean, for the same reason. And I bet they took the cue from comics. They were like, "Fuck it," <laughs> you know. They worked for them. You know, we're getting sure. we're getting yeah, blasted the, by moms. Yeah, as long as the government can't impose what they want, if they can govern themselves, that's probably the lesser of two evils. Probably. Right? During the, uh, as I was reading the transcription of the uh, Kafava, and uh, the, the DC was, they almost got away with that internal code, but at some point they found out that DC was in bed with a, uh, a quote unquote bad comics publisher. Can't find a whole lot of in- information on what that publisher is, and even during the transcriptions, they said that they, they weren't going to go deep into it. You know, so, I, I, if anyone out there is listening to this and they know what this is about, please write in and uh, tell us more about it. I'm really interested to know. I mean, was it like a, you know, men's magazine publisher, or were they found to be making Tijuana Bibles on the third shift at the printer? You know, something like this. Uh, yeah, just something strange. It's it, it it stinks. Yeah, there's something in there. <laughs> that brings us almost to the point where uh, Julius Schwartz is going to reveal the Flash, but. We're going to save that for the next episode. So that, that pretty much wraps up this part mm-hmm. of our discussion about the uh, advent of the Silver Age without actually entering the Silver Age. Next week, we will talk about showcase number four. Um, but if you have any questions or comments or corrections or you want to tell us what that bad publisher was that DC was in bed yes. with, please write to us, uh, care of this podcast at Weird Science DC Comics at gmail.com and if you want to follow us on Twitter you can follow me at Reggie Reggie and I'm at Ace Comics and of course do not forget to read uh, Chris's excellent blog Chris is on infiniteearth.blogspot.com you just wrapped up your hundred days of reviewing I did uh, I did, uh, I did uh, Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man as my big hundredth and uh it took a better part of a day to put together. <laughs> uh, it, it, but, uh, it was truly phenomenal. Uh, I, I, as you know, I read that one. Uh, I didn't read that comic, but you really brought out the best uh, aspects of that comic and really brought it I home. I appreciate that. Uh, you also had a JLA week recently, I think. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was inadvertent, but yeah, it wound up that uh, <laughs> I did JLA almost every day for a week. You did, was, you uh, did the uh, Extreme Justice, you did JLA Europe, you did uh, another one, too. So... You, yeah. you gotta check it out. Have you kept up with every day since the? I have. Yeah, I'm at a hundred and four days now. So, so, so you, what you do? You're looking at a man that's about to snap people. So for that reason alone, I'm getting there. <laughs> just you should be looking at that blog every day. One day you're gonna see it. It's just gonna be you know all all play all work and no play makes Chris a dull boy. Boy, <laughs> and you know that he uh, 
has lost the plot. So just just to be on hand for that, it's worth checking out. So uh, anyway, uh, for Weird Comics History, my name is Reggie. And I'm Chris. And uh, we hope you have a weird week historically. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome back to Weird Comics History. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And we like to bring you some weird comics history every week on the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast. Uh, this week we actually have our first part two of an issue we talked about last week, the when Julius Schwartz created the Silver Age. Uh, but last week we barely talked about Julius Schwartz, right Chris? Yeah, we uh, we, we basically uh, we did the, uh, the lead up to Julius a, Schwartz a, doing a br- this. A it brief was, uh... history of comics going back to hieroglyphics and all the way up to about <laughs> 1954. Uh, just the whole to, preamble. Just to re- recap, uh, what we talked about, you know, there was a golden age of comics that really had its heyday in World War II. That's where we get a lot of our uh, most popular superheroes that we even know today. Wonder Woman, Superman, uh, Batman, they're all from that, that era. Uh, the Flash, the first Flash, the first Green Lantern. Uh, and they were really popular up until about World War II ended. And then the superheroes sort of waned in popularity. They gave way to romance and Western and especially horror comics became huge. Crime comics... Uh, was a huge thing at the time. And then in 1954 was the Kefauver hearings the, about juvenile delinquency, to which uh, Frederick Wertham, who had written a book called Seduction of the Innocent, which claimed that comics contributed to juvenile delinquency, was one of the uh, contributing witnesses. And that really uh, was the death knell for comics. It brought, for comics as we know them, it brought about a code, the Comics Code Authority, which essentially neutered all comic stories. Superheroes had to be uncommonly good and villains had to be uncommonly bad and and there were a lot of restrictions placed on what we could see and the narrative kind of suffered for it so during that whole time there weren't many superhero comics being published in fact i think only uh superman batman wonder woman and an aquaman backup was it yeah, I think Aquaman, I think uh, Green Arrow was a backup too, but uh, That's right. probably Batman. not on the same scale. Yeah, but you know, th- th- that was it. And uh, all, all those comics, I recommend them because they're so silly and 1950s boring. You know, there's even a kind of flatness about the art. It, everything just sort of has, yeah, has a certain veneer, you know. It's interesting because, uh, you know, you figure, you know, we look at comics as being this, you know, grand creative endeavor, but... Uh, when they were when the handcuffs were put on them, they usually you know when the handcuffs are put on you, you get creative. Yeah. You find ways around. Comics just seem to kind of bend over. It was just okay. Yeah. We will we will just be four color, play by the rules, and not really explore any type of themes that could be construed as controversial in any way. Yeah, they were, they really spun their wheels for for several years, just doing the same kind of stories over and over and over again, and. Never any real consequences, never really any conflict. So, uh, interestingly, comics did sell like gangbusters, but it's also important to remember this was a time of Donald Duck comics and other funny animal comics and little Lulu. It's Comics weren't just superheroes. In fact, they were mostly not superheroes. Yeah, it was very diverse. So, you know, out of that landscape comes, in 1956, 
the dawn of the Silver Age yeah. with uh, showcase number four. That brings us the uh, the red costumed uh, Flash. Uh, Barry Allen makes That's his right. first appearance there. The costume and, uh, from a ring. Yep, it comes out of his ring. <laughs> um, it's funny, uh, in doing the research here, I found that uh, it's argued that Barry Allen is not the first Silver Age hero. Mm. I'm not sure how much credence you give this, but uh, Martian Manhunter is looked at by some circles as the first true Silver Age hero. Mm-hmm. He uh, first showed up about a year before Barry in a backup feature for uh, Detective Comics in issue uh, 225. That came out November 1955, where Barry showed up in October 1956. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much I lend to this because... Uh, it was it was just a backup issue. It was just backup feature. He really he wasn't a reimagining. It wasn't like like yeah. Barry's not a new character, but he is a reimagining of an old property, which I think is kind of the uh, is kind of the trademark of the DC Silver Age. I, I would do, I would agree with that. You know, Mar- Martian Manhunter has some uh, semi scientific, as the phrase I used before, trappings yes. that sort of make him a little bit Silver Age. Uh, not to mention the space, the Mars angle, but dude, it's it's low popularity. It just doesn't have the same panache as dusting off an old Golden Age guy, you know, st- stripping him of his blousy shirts and his uh, wild-looking cape, and then putting him in a wetsuit. That really, to me, is the Silver Age, you know. So I, I think I think Martian Manhunter has a hand in there. Maybe that was testing the waters two years before the fact, but. Uh, I would really put it at showcase number four. Um, Certainly, and uh, yeah, that, that really was a, a sea uh, change. Yeah, the backups seemed to be just things that were floating. You know, Martian Manhunter he could have taken off like gangbusters, but he didn't. You yeah. know, so I mean, the, you know, if history was kinder to old John Jones, there we we may popular opinion might be that he was first, but since it wasn't, he kind of just flies under the radar. Yeah, for even to this day, and sometimes he gets severely maligned as he has recently been in DC Comics. Although, yes, there was a recent series by Rob Williams that I recommend, but that's. Not really in what we're talking about here. <laughs> now, uh, we were talking about how, uh, you know, the Golden Age was rooted in global literature and uh, magic. A lot of magic, uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, this uh, new age was uh, more science fiction oriented. Well, let's, let, let's, um, let's talk briefly about Barry Allen's certainly. new origin. So his old origin uh, for Jay Garrick, the Flash, was he knocked over some beakers full of hard water and the fumes <laughs> from water... Everybody, though those water fumes seeped into his system and gave him super speed. And we talked last week about how I think that you know uh, they might have thought that could happen, but it was really nonsense. Certainly. This time, it's uh, Barry Allen is a forensics what police, scientist. police scientist, right? Yeah. And uh, he's the, the Central City Police Department is probably the most underfunded police department in the country because they keep <laughs> their most hazardous chemicals on a bookshelf right by an open window. You know, usually in most most labs, I think they usually keep those in a case. You'll tell, am I right? Yeah, they 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 didn't have any locks in Central <laughs> nothing, City. It's yeah. Very strange. <laughs> it was they were they had just moved in, I guess. They were like, I'll put these here for now. And yeah, a, it was just temporary. And a bolt of lightning streaks in and smashes all the chemicals, and they bathe Barry Allen. And is some unknown mixture of those chemicals is able to give him permanent super speed. Now, it's definitely could be argued that that's just as much bullshit as. Hard, inhaling hard water, but I think by giving him a scientific career, I think by acknowledging chemical chemical research and chemistry, uh, it was an attempt by Julius Schwartz. Well, 
Uh, you know, I got to I got to disagree a little bit because one of the one of the tried and true uh, measures of uh, seeing how scientific something is is the repeatability of the same uh, experiment. Uh-huh. And years later, it would happen to someone else. The, the same thing. Same thing. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> Wally West would uh, get hit by that bolt of lightning that hits the chemicals and come out the. Very similar to uh, his uncle Barry. And you know, there was actually an issue where, and I, I wish I had the number with me, but it, it could it had to be around the same time. Kid Flash was around, so it was I would say before 1960, 58, 59, where Barry Allen has a dream that Iris West also gets the same <laughs> powers. Now it was a dream, but so that's a third time, the exact same. Basically, put all of the hazardous forensic chemicals that you know on a on a shelf and wait for a lightning storm. And you'll get super speed, and anyone can do it, you know. So it's a, it's a repeatable experiment. Therefore, it passes the it empirical passes method. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm surprised there's no journals about it. Quite frankly, I'd like to see more of that. So that yes, that, that really, you know, as as much baloney as it is, and even I want to do a brief thing about his uh, his ring, you know, his his ring that ejects the suit. Yes. When that first when that first came out, uh, every time it did, the caption was. Just like a inflatable raft can, you know, inflate to several times its size when it hits the water, so too does Barry Allen's costume expand. That's definitely True believer. That's dev- yeah, That's definitely <laughs> Julius Schwartz had read something in some magazine, and just didn't, didn't understand really what was happening because you can't, you know, yeah, <laughs> it, the, the the inflatable raft first of all it inflates, you know what I mean. So a lot of that space is air, and it's able to go several times its size because of that. But it's not like it molecularly grows. It, it's you know what I mean. It's the same size, <laughs> uh, you know, without air as it is with air. It just has different volume. But that's okay. We 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 forgive Julius Schwartz for kind of fudging it and uh, the the gimmick. Although again, I always thought I thought if any hero had the ability to run home and change, yeah, it's, it it's the Flash. Flash. <laughs> you know, like why does he have to carry this ring around? <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry to get a little bit off track there. Now uh, the uh, these new heroes. Uh, they were. Uh, I was reading in uh, Super Gods by uh, Grant Morrison. He uh, he stated that the Silver Age heroes represented the contemporary Kennedy man. Um, you you know, handsome, confident, go getters. Uh, they would rely more on their wits instead of their fists. So that was a uh, part of the shift from the Golden Age, where you know you'd have Superman punch a guy through a wall. Right. And uh, and you know in the in the you know Silver Age would try to outthink. His uh, his foes. He might fly to Antarctica, pick up a glacier, <laughs> and just over, drop it on him. Well, that, <laughs> cause, cause it to melt. That would cause a steam bath. I mean, you know, it, it was always. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. Mort Weisinger, who wrote Superman at the time, said that he would come up with as many ways. He, he felt like his object was how to figure out how Superman was going to get out of his jam without using his powers. Yeah, very I, Rube Goldberg. I think it's. I think it's a really interesting way to look at it. Uh, Batman also was very much more. Less gadget-based, more cagey, more using his uh, environmental trappings, yeah. So, you know, storytelling had changed a bit and maybe updated to something kids would be more interested in. Yeah, just a less, uh, you know, less point A to point B, and uh, you know, with a little bit of a tangent in there, where where there is a little break to, you know, decompress and think. The uh, these heroes were uh, costumed; they were dressed by Carmine Infantino, mm-hmm. and uh, these uh, costume designs were uh, they really streamlined and simplified from the, you know, the flowers, the blousy shirt, and the uh, big cape yeah. of uh, the Golden Age, and uh, most of these looks became the 
you know, the definitive iconic look for these characters that is still in practice today. And, and really the definitive look for superheroes of any, almost any company, you know, uh, yeah. definitely Marvel. Just the idea of wearing these skin-tight outfits, yeah, you know, other characters and the most popular characters of the day did have them already. But this, I think, just changed, like, there was going to be no more of this... You know, wearing a robe or whatever to be a superhero, you either had to be well. Nowadays, you have to be bare to the chest, bare to the waist. But back yes. then, you know, you had to wear a skin tight wetsuit. And uh, to me, that that is that's the more striking shift from the oh, golden absolutely. to the silver age. The visual change. Uh, Carmen Infantino does deserve probably his own very own podcast. His uh, contributions to DC Comics and to comics are almost innumerable. But in, in, in this capacity, he also brought about a little bit of diamond, dynamic storytelling. You know, a little bit of foreshortening, a little bit of stepping out of the panel, a little bit of, like, action shots. He also was editor-in-chief at one time, which uh, is something else, you know. And we have that now at Marvel with uh, Axel, oh no, uh, Joe Casada, right? Uh, Axel Alonso is the editor-in-chief. Editor uh, Joe Casada is the CCO at the moment, I believe. But he, he was editor-in-chief or something. He was. He was. For, yes. the, for, the, for an art guy to, to Certainly. get up there. You know, I think Infantino was the first one to do that. And, uh, you know, Very di likely. Dictated a uh, certain visual look for the, for the company. And uh, just can't, can't really say too much good about him. Or, uh, or enough good about him, I guess is a better way to put it. But, uh, but we, that's uh, for another day. <laughs> <laughs> so the landscape right now, 1956, you know, people have talked about the 50s and it's kind of homogenized suburban aesthetic, but it also was a time of tremendous amounts of progress uh, scientifically and socially, especially towards the tail end of its civil rights kicked in right around 58. Uh, something else happened in 58, though, known as Sputnik, which was uh, when the USSR, Russia, launched their first satellite that orbited the planet. And uh, people tend to look at the 50s as when the space race started, but Sputnik was when that was the moment that the space race started. Before that, there were attempts to fire rockets. There was hopes of going maybe to look at the moon. Once the space race started, it was, <laughs> we're going to land on the moon. The end, you know, we're going to see what it, what's yeah. on there, and we're going to put a flag there, and, and that's all there is to it. That really kicked in uh, as a promise two years later, or really one year later, uh, when Kennedy campaigned. But 58 this was the this was the moment and you know it, it really changed everything about entertainment about society you know there was a kind of a concerted effort for people to get back to math and sciences in schools this is when uh, uh, Kennedy would later bring in the uh, standardized education something or other where you had to take mm -hmm. credits these certain credits of math and science and English and social studies every year so uh, it also he also brought in having to take gym credits every day in school. So if you that annoyed the shit out of you, you can blame John F. Kennedy for that. That was his uh, introduction. This this really was a sea change in uh, the way Americans viewed everything, and uh, the comics reflected that. Suddenly, it was it was no more necessarily fighting a guy robbing a bank or even fighting the penguin. It was fighting. The space monster it was fighting a lot of mm -hmm. alien threats. So this idea of just going into space. And uh, this was around a time that a character that, who had been around for several years, uh, I don't know if he's a Golden Age character. Do you know if Adam Strange? I don't I'm believe not he sure. is. I don't believe he is. I don't is. think so. But Adam Strange, who is you know, DC's sort of space guy, uh, was brought in around this time and to tap totally into that zeitgeist of uh, <laughs> traveling through space, having space adventures. The whole nature of space adventures, too, changed where they were much more fantasy 
uh, <laughs> before that it was go to go to Mars as a Martian civilization whatever talk to the king fight the Martian dragon you know what I mean that kind yeah, of thing fight the civil war and yeah, <laughs> yeah we help them win their civil war <laughs> and everything will be great this was much more like go to a planet get samples there's a piece of moss on it that you know grows into something that's going to usurp the entire ship a lot more EC kind of science fiction stories and stuff that you'd see more in Twilight Zone in years to come so this Certainly. was so 58 was the fulcrum sort of between I think those two ways of looking at science fiction as being you know more fiction heavy and then after that was more science heavy yeah more based in a potential reality and then and a, a Science concept, we'll say. As I said Certainly. before, semi-science. Several, not not really too much later than that. Uh, in 1961, we had the concept of the multiverse uh, introduced. Yeah. And uh, we'll touch on this briefly because I'm sure that we'll be talking about this at some point in the future. For sure. Um, this is a, uh, and I think the, uh, I don't follow the television show Flash, but I think there, aren't they playing off of this? Oh, yeah. They've got a multiverse yeah. going. The whole season for the Flash has been... Uh, them flitting back and forth between Earth Two and Earth Prime. Okay, uh, very I, good. I'm not gonna. I won't do a whole recap, but it's it's <laughs> it's it's heavily embedded in the lore of the show. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, this is the uh, Flash of Two Worlds we're talking about in uh, Flash number 123, September 1961. And uh, this is where we uh, we learn that, uh, you know, to Barry Allen and, and I guess to the entire Silver Age, uh, the heroes of the Golden Age were just that. They were they were. You know, costumed superhero yep. comic book characters. Now, this is uh, where the uh, two flashes meet, and it's got that iconic cover of uh, both flashes running towards a, a construction worker having a beam fallen on him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, on either side of a brick wall. Uh, yes, like, uh, yeah, hold on, I'm on my way. Yeah. This would introduce that concept of a multiverse where there are more than one Earth uh, in the DC universe. And uh, would bring forth uh, many crises yep, in the years right. to come. Uh, there was this. There was the annual summer crossover between the JLA and the JSA that continued. Where they'd, you know, one year they'd have Crisis on Earth X, yeah, and they'd, you know, meet the Freedom Fighters, and then Crisis on Earth two or three, and they'd fight the Crime Syndicate, and uh, that all led to, you know, the the, the big crisis. But uh, yeah. I'm and the sure that <laughs> subsequent many many crises. But that's a, that's another topic. That's, uh, yes. <laughs> but I mean, right, right here, you're looking at the genesis of one of DC's strongest concepts. Some, something that, frankly, Marvel has never been able to duplicate with the same kind of success, or at least with the same enthusiasm. Uh, even yeah. though then DC, they just keep adding Spider-Man. They just, you know, yeah, they they're, they're okay <laughs> with many Spider-Man, but they've never really. I mean, there there is a multiverse in Marvel that I think now has collapsed. But uh, and the same thing happened in New Fifty Two. They basically wiped away the multiverse, which. That's really more editorializing for another time, but in generally yeah. speaking, through most of their history, Marvel was the one rooted in the real world, quote unquote. DC yeah. had a much more rich fantasy kind of a, a uh, almost a less uh, rules. Yeah, fewer rules and and just like yeah, more possibilities. Yeah, they had like a viable team of superhero animals that were actually like considered part of canon, you know? Uh, yep. <laughs> so it, it right there it happened in 1961, but also something else happened now. In 1962, that we called the Marvel Age, uh, that was the debut of Fantastic Four number one, which did you in 1961? Oh, that was 1961. Yeah, uh, yeah, Amazing Fantasy age. was 1962. So, uh, but 
Chris, in his diligence, showed that there was actually an attempt to bring about the Marvel Age earlier, earlier even than uh, DC did it in 1953, cover dated December 1953, Young Men number 24, uh, featured Captain America as a history teacher, Bucky as a student, Human Torch was buried in the desert, that would be the android Human Torch, not the Johnny Storm Human Torch, and Namor returned underwater. Uh, this was obviously an attempt to sort of breathe life into these heroes and see if they had relevance, and they didn't take. Red Skull was a communist, that's right, they, they kind of wiped away the Nazi past, and the new enemy was communism. Uh, but, you know, this would sort of be a template for Marvel's entire, uh, their, how they handle timelines. They have what they call a sliding timeline. Right now, I believe in the Marvel Universe, everything kind of starts... Seven years ago or something like that? Well, I, I think it... Or it was at some point. I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to say things that we haven't done research, but I believe hmm. what I read, something Tom Brevoort wrote a couple of years ago, that Fantastic Four in the current universe would have debuted around 2002. Okay. So that's why now, the, you know, the military references are to Afghanistan and Iraq... And, you know, they deal with current, more current events problems. That's the way they've handled it, whereas DC is more prone to reboot. You know, wipe, <laughs> wipe away or change or whatever, throw a bunch of planets in the multiversal blender and, and spit them out and see what they come up with. This is sort of the way they deal with keeping these characters relevant forever. Oh, there we go. Dr. Droom, 1961. Amazing Adventures, 1961. Dr. Droom was sort of a uh, strange Dr. Strange, right? Sort of like a low-budget... Yeah. Like, it was somebody that would become really one or more of Doctor Strange's villains, I think, was really more emulated. But this yeah. was a bringing out of, of the new skin tight, leotard wearing type superhero. And uh, even though it wasn't scientific, still kind of had more of what we would know as the new trappings of the Silver Age. Yeah, the Silver Age aesthetic. Uh, undeniably, though, probably the most Silver Age property of all would be mm -hmm. the first family of Fantastic Four. Uh, that would be, uh, you know. The Reeds and uh, Ben Grimm. That was 1961, and uh, definitely considered the true start of the Marvel Age of Comics. I don't really see. I have never anyone contest that, and it was no. it was like a mixture of romance, science fiction, and horror and monster comics. Definitely, uh, essentially, you know, Kirby and Stanley have been doing this for a long time. By that time, you know, they've been doing Certainly. it for over 20 something years. So they stick with what they know, and they had. Fantastic Four were definitely based in space. They went into space, and cosmic rays gave them powers, and then they came back, and they fought monsters, and there was always this back and forth. One of them was a monster. One of them was actually, that's yeah. true, was an actual monster. And uh, this this was really what we would consider the, the most Silver age a comic could be. And, Absolutely. You know, also partly to Kirby's incredible compositions. I mean, he... he you know, I talked about Carmen Infantino. Part of the reason I think he gets wiped away in a lot of discussions is because Kirby would come a few years later and just change the language of comics. Totally. Oh, uh, and, when, and when he did that, it was hard to look at guys like uh, Gil Kane and Infantino, who were great artists in their own right, but it seemed like what they were doing was uh, ancient. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, pretty much once Fantastic Four came out, they started rolling out a steady number of new books that uh, I can't remember the next one was it Thor I, I think it might have been Journey into Journey into Mystery yeah I believe, you know you had, had Spider-Man everybody the Hulk came out they even brought back Namor they were able to bring back Captain America and make him relevant um, and you know Marvel would steadily gain market share I mean there's definitely 
a whole other podcast, probably not to be done by <laughs> us, about about Marvel's history just in that decade. It's, it's very fascinating, and I do recommend if very people rich. are interested to yeah. read the untold story of Marvel Comics by uh, Sean Howe. That's who it is. Hmm. It's actually right next to me. It's 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 a really interesting book. It tells talks mostly about Marvel, but also will tell you a lot about the comics industry at the time. But, yeah, the landscape. But b- before the decade was out, Marvel would be the top-selling uh, comics company. So this obviously worked for them. This was a uh, good little gimmick they did. Yeah. So, uh, and that pretty much wraps up how this Silver Age began. I sort of stumbled through it a little bit, but I think, hope you got some tidbits information out of there. Um, just wanted to touch on the last bit about how uh, what Julius Schwartz did, which was to take an old property, dust it off, give it a new suit and new trappings. New coat of paint, yep. It's sort of what everyone, is sort of what the the biggest and best writers have been doing today for years now. Uh, Absolutely. If you want to you run down your new 52 ideas, they're well, pretty good. It, you know, I was uh, thinking, you know, I was, uh, I was recently doing research on another uh, article I was writing, and uh, one thing that pops into mind, it, it's not a DC property, but uh, what uh, Alan Moore did with Marvel Man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, where, you know, the... Uh, the entire, all of his golden to silver age exploits were memories that were implanted into him and the Marvel Man family. Yeah. So uh, when Alan Moore, you know, re- revitalized that character, he wasn't throwing everything away. So everything was still there. Whether or not it actually happened is immaterial. Yeah. But he, he all of those off. stories still count. And, yeah. And, and just, 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 I just want to say a brief thing. So what Marvel Man was for the UK was at first it was reprints of Fawcett Comics, Captain Marvel, who a lot of people might know as Shazam today. But when yeah. those ran out, when they could no longer make those comics due to a dispute with DC, which might be its own podcast, they started <laughs> to make new ones. And that's when they created, uh, you know, the Marvel Men family and, and, and uh, essentially created a new lore, but it was really milk toast, really. Forgettable, it was, it was a forgettable weak. lot of comics, yeah. And Alan Moore would bring in, would 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 bring them into the really the late into 20th the 80s, century, yeah. Yeah, into the 80s, and uh, kind of grossed them up a little bit, I guess we could say. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so good. Uh, oh yeah, that 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 is some good crazy comics. Probably the first of its kind of that kind of like gritty. Real, yeah, real uh, guttural, real noir, real noir <laughs> yeah. superhero comic. You might want to call it or something. Uh, yeah. Besides the spirit, uh, which is its own animal. Yes. Uh, you also had mentioned, you know, the New 52 did a lot of this, trying to dust off forgotten, especially Bronze Age properties like Dial yeah. for Heroes, uh, The Gem World, House of Secrets, Justice League Dark. They also had, I mean, you know, they're, they're dicking around with Kirby's Fourth World is sort of constantly omnipresent yeah, in DC, but, but, but they tried doing that too, tried to like, you know, bring out OMAC and even Infinity Man and the Forever People, which I don't think anyone had thought about for 30 years up to that point, except for maybe <laughs> Dan DiDio uh, and Keith Giffen. And uh, yeah, they, they brought back the, <laughs> the Batman of Zer and Ah, which really was yeah. one of, you know, it's funny before that even came out, that's one of my favorite Batman stories, the Batman from Planet X. Uh, mm-hmm. And that Batman's actually called Telenos. Okay. One of the very stupidest names because it has not enough vowels in it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Graham Morrison took this concept when Batman had gone to another planet where on that planet he had Superman's powers. Yep. Uh, and, and Telenos was the Batman of that planet. He was sort of in a 
green and or uh, purple and purple and orange and red yeah. uh, ensemble. Very gaudy. <laughs> Whereas Grant Morrison changed that. That was actually his surrogate personality that he could slip into if he had ever been compromised, which is really kind of mind blowing if you ask me. But that's that's my opinion on the matter. Um, Certainly. You know, you can go on and on with this though. You know, that that's Grant Morrison's claim to fame is is dredging up these weirdo characters and making them relevant today. That's Jonathan Hickman does that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's on and on and on. Finding the corners of comics lore to exploit like that has become harder and harder, obviously, as more and more people have done it. But it's sure. still, it still is the bread and butter of a lot of the greatest creators or people that are considered the greatest creators today. Uh, do you have any more that come to mind? Um, you know, I, I was reading uh, Kevin Smith's Green Arrow, that the Quiver run, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I didn't really dig this take, but uh, he did uh, bring Stanley and his monster out. There you go, you know, and, and talk about a weird property. <laughs> yeah, that was just such a strange thing to see on a cover of a turn of the century comic book. Was, you know, a Matt Wagner painted Stanley and his monster. And and after he had already done that miniseries that you reviewed on your blog, you know, kind of like yeah, the Phil Foglio one. That, yeah, that was even that was even more bizarre. So that's why Arnold Drake is has uh, he has uh, lines on the inside of his coffin from spinning around in his grave so often because people keep <laughs> fucking with his creations constantly. Oh boy! So that really wraps up, I think, our talk about how Julia Schwartz created the Silver Age way back in the fifties. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something. We hope that you want to write to us and tell us how wrong we are about everything. <laughs> and if you want to do that, you want to write to weirdsciencedccomics at gmail.com. Or if you want to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And as I say every week, you would do yourself a great service to go to Chris's personal blog. That's Chris is on infraearths.blogspot.com. This week you did all four issues of wild dog right and that was that yeah just yeah i actually did uh, the first one a few months ago and i i forgot about it oh, okay. so then i uh and then I, I i wrapped it up it was such a fun story that i i didn't see coming it it, it really is not a not a bad miniseries and you know you really did bring out that you know you, you tend to tell just enough to make the reader feel like they've engaged with it but they haven't quite <laughs> sat and returned every page and uh Really well done. Also comes with ads at the bottom of every one that are from each issue, so you can really pretend that you bought it off the rack instead of just read somebody's blog. You can get into the gestalt of it. For Weird Comics History, I am Reggie. And I am Chris. And we will will, uh, see you next time. Excellent. Goodbye. (laughs) He's the monarch of motion, the sultan of speed, the wizard of whizzle, yes indeed. Go from here to China in a no time flat. Beat the speed of light and-